Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. This is Denisha. And this is Aaron. So today we are joined by Dr. Austin Johnson, who is a BCBA school psychologist and assistant professor at UC Riverside. We are talking about the Rakers and Lovas article. If you are aware, um, Jabba Siab decided to issue a statement of concern regarding the original article. And immediately after seeing the statement of concern, we were concerned. We were concerned about the tone deafness of the article. We were concerned about the decision to want to do something without contacting members of the community and potentially um, members that could have helped shape a better response to this in the first place. And so with that concern, we partnered up with the Upswing Advocates and really, not even we partnered up. I want to make sure that this is uh, really clear, that the upswing advocates have been previously pushing for this well before we even got word of this. And the upswing advocates um, brought this to us and said, hey, this is something that we want to push forward. And um, so here we are. So today we are joining uh by Dr. Johnson, who also felt concern with seeing that expression, so much so that he wrote a formal response to Jabba and Siab's statement. And in this uh, documentation, in this manuscript, he really outlined the, the issues of the original article and even the issues of what we're seeing now with this statement. And, um, I really do hate that it seems like the leaders felt like this was the step that was necessary to really rectify and address the harms of this issue. And we said it here on this show before, um, I really believe that we must watch ourselves. We must really consider our behaviors. When we decide as members who are not part of a specific community, that piecemeal justice is acceptable. And this one, this response really hurt the community and it shows I don't have the evidence for it. All I know is I have the evidence of people from the community who have reached out online, who have reached out to us directly and felt harmed and felt really saddened by this response. So yeah, that's where we are. Aaron, did you want to add anything? I think just kind of springboarding off of what you said that the expression of concern brought about a lot of concern um, from us but one of those is the the concern for the community that that statement harms um, and and I think that you know our field 
we require data to for anything to be relevant, significant, or worthwhile, and we continually um, use objectivity to discount personal narratives as data. And I think that that directly speaks to um, an issue that we have and how we define social validity and what's important and how we measure social validity. Um, and it, it's just, you know, for something that our field holds at like a core dimension, um, this is this is a perfect example that spans throughout decades um, as to how something could just be so damaging. Uh, and and I'm really just I'm, I'm so glad that um, Austin, you know, you've you've come forward. I'm, I'm so grateful that, the um, you know, Warner and, and August from Upswing Advocates really started this back at the beginning of 2020. And they have just done so much work. Um, you know, and it just, this work just keeps going and going and going and it never stops. Um, and I think if anything, like the tone of your voice, when we started that, it is not kind of like this upbeat. It is, this is serious shit that it's just like, it hurts to talk about this stuff. So um, I really hope that, that there's gonna be a lot of honest conversation. There's gonna be a lot of hard things that are said, but it's, um, it's really hard topic to, to talk about, but one that needs to happen. So with that said. Welcome Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for sitting tight while we kind of like went on our. No, I feel the same way. No, absolutely. I think there's so much to unpack. So many. I agree. It's so hard to read this and so hard to approach this without just these deep feelings of just sadness and just rage in some ways. You know, I think that it's really challenging. I like to use the term righteous anger. Right. right just yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to get us started, one of the things that I know, um, and actually, you know, even listening to the original um podcast that was released. Um, and so there was for those who listen to specific podcasts in our field, there was a, a certain podcast that um the expression of concern was released on uh, and where the editor and one of the board members discussed um, in detail why they did what they did. Even the editor at the time said that she wasn't aware of the issues of this article. And so I believe that there are lots of people in our field who are also not aware, which is also a problem in itself. I am very intentional. Um, You need to know the history of this field. You cannot come into a field without knowing that. It needs to be part of the introduction. Hello, this is ABA. Yeah, we've done some great things here. And this is where we actually started. And this is what we've actually contributed to the world. And this is how we've harmed the world. And so I think that people don't know about the Rakers, Reekers uh, um, article and so if you could detail that experiment for our listeners who may not be aware. Sure. And I want to start by saying I didn't know about this either. I teach in a VCS. I've been a BCBA for, oh, six years. Um, and I didn't know about this article until Siab tweeted about it. Like, and that was my first experience with this, despite the fact that, and this is probably an indictment on my teaching, that it's in my textbook, that I assigned behavior modification by Milton Berger in my undergrad ABA class. And apparently I didn't read it close enough because it took 
someone else notifying me that, that it's in there. So I'm, I'm part of that. Like I did not understand that history. I was not aware of what had happened here until that statement of concern came out. Um, so to that end, to, to talk a little bit about Rikers and Lavas. Um, so it's a 1974 paper in Java. Um, so it describes uh, a kid with the pseudonym, Craig, uh, pseudonym Craig, whose name was Kirk Murphy. Um, and Craig, uh, Craig's parents bring him to uh, Richard Green's clinic at UCLA. Um, and Richard Green refers him, refers Craig and his family to Rikers and Lavas. And Reekers uh, describes Craig's behavior, uh, his, you know, identifies him as a boy and identifies his gender nonconforming behavior with terms like uh, high screechy voice and a phrase that just really sticks with me, this idea of him having slovenly seductive eyes that is just really challenging to kind of sit with. Um, so with this understanding of this child, uh, this four-year-old, when they when he's referred, he's, he's four, four years, I think 11 months, when he's initially referred to Reekers, Reekers coaches uh, Kirk's parents to uh, first in a clinic do extinction with him where they're providing attention when he engages in positive behaviors, which are things like, um, you know, I think engaging in masculine, engaging with toys that are traditionally associated with masculinity and then ignoring when he engages with toys that, that are traditionally associated with femininity. Um, then they move from the clinic to the home and they use a token economy at home uh, with blue and red chips, these, these actual poker chips and Kirk's parents or Kirk's siblings rather um, still have these chips. They, they sort of, they, they really, this, this is something that's very resonant for them as, as part of what happened to Kirk. Uh, the blue chips are provided initially for just kind of general positive behavior, but then transfers to gender conforming behavior. And then there are red chips, which act not only as a response cost, but also as positive punishment through physical abuse of, of Kirk. Um, and, you know, it, and we can talk more about kind of the journalism that's occurred around Kirk's life, but it's very clear that what was happening with Kirk was not as described in Rikers and Lovelace, just simple not going to say simple, but I mean, we could still definitely define this as, and describe this as physical abuse, swats on Kirk, um, real damaging, bruising, difficult, difficult harm to, to Kirk. Um, so in the paper, we talk through Kirk's behavior. They talk about how Kirk's behavior, Kirk's gender nonconforming behavior really doesn't start to change until they start using positive punishment, until they start using this physical abuse on Kirk. Um, and they sort of wrap up with this idea of, look, like, we don't know if this will, I, I think something important to note is that throughout this, throughout Reekers and Lavas, we're really conflating gender identity and sexual orientation. And Reekers is talking about how by deterring Kirk's gender nonconforming behavior, we're deferring what he refers to as transvestism, right? And homosexuality. And that at the end of this article, we're really wrapping it up in this idea of, well, we don't know, hopefully this will keep him from being gay, but only time will tell. And so this is 1974, it's based on Riker's dissertation from 1972 and the actual abuse and coaching of, of Kirk's parents occurred in 1970. Um, so that's, that's kind of a summary of what generally is going on in this paper itself. It's tough to get through those details, even though I've heard those details. Um, and yeah. One of the things that comes up for me that I would like for our listeners to kind of think about 
on this past show, we've talked about researchers. We've talked about ourselves as professionals, what we bring to certain environments, that we are part of the environment. And um, being able to consider how our learning histories matter and how our viewpoints matter when we work with individual groups and why there needs to be also a push within the field to disclose who the researchers are and also to disclose obviously who their participants are. Because if you look at the authors and particularly I would like for us to discuss Reekers, if you look at the authors, their learning histories absolutely matter to help shape this experiment. There was a time where Reekers, because of the work that he has done, he has been called to be expert um, witnesses for certain uh, cases. And there was a case in Arkansas in which he was uh, asked to serve. And when he was, the ACLU profiled him. So I want us to go over Reeker's background just so that we can paint the picture of why it's important for us to be questioning who we are when we start to work with individuals and why we've chosen certain goals and why we think certain goals are appropriate and maybe potentially valid. He is known to be an anti-gay activist, a very conservative Christian preacher, Baptist. He founded the Family Research Council, which has notoriously been known to be an anti-gay group. His research, per the ACLU, said that he relied on the work of a researcher by the name of Paul Cameron, which was also an anti-gay researcher, who actually was kicked out of the American Psychological Association for the work that he had done um, against members of the LGBTQ community. He doubled down on his hatred of the gay community so much that he went as far as trying to make sure that um, gay families could not foster children. Suggested that they couldn't be parents because for some reason, that there's a higher risk for AIDS um, and that, that disqualified them from being foster parents. Um, I think all of that is important. I think that the fact that his viewpoints then led him to a life to do conversion therapy, to try to cure individuals from what he considered to be a sin and what we later found out that he potentially engaged was also um I won't I won't go that far to say what he was but um we found out later there was an expose on Anderson Cooper that he might have been involved with or that he was involved with uh um a male and that they went on an excursion together to, in Europe. And so what that brings up to me is internalized homophobia. That might be um, an underlining, um, an underlining, an underlining issue in which 
you've been taught by society that you can't be a certain way. Um, my mental health background is coming up here. So we talk about the defense mechanisms for mental health. Sublimation is one. Sublimation means that society has taught you that you can't do this thing. So then you go get, um, so then you go to do this particular career to kind of like shield those um, behaviors, those desires. And this one might be just a tad bit different, meaning like if I was an aggressive person, I might become a boxer. But if we're thinking about internalized homophobia, I've been taught by society that I cannot be gay. So then I choose my professional career to then espouse harm on other people. Um, it, 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 to me, it seems to mirror that. And so we have to, we have to be able to consider all of these factors for each and every last one of us, for the fact that if a parent comes to me and says, I want you to work on this with my child, why would I be so readily available to say yes? What's going on with me? And, and so I think if nothing else, this information really causes analysts to say, yeah, we, we know that we need to do more profiling on even us as the professionals um, sent in any type of situation. So I'm off my soapbox. I think for me, just listening to all of those things, there's a lot of things that, that personally come up, you know, as a as a, a person of the queer community that my all of my kids were adopted from the foster care system to know that that the <clears throat> founding research uh, of our field was done by somebody who spoke out against me wanting to have kids, you know, in, in that way. Um, and, and I think that the that brings to, to the question, and when we posted the, um, and with Upswing Advocates and Austin, you too, like posted the petition, the, um, I was so shocked with the divisiveness that was met um, and just the outright, no, this is like scientific evidence. It needs to be left there because, um, and the one that sticks out in my mind was the, um, somebody saying that scientists have the right to have access to this information. And for me, it's like, at whose at whose cost you know to to what harm um and who's right to have access to this information because it's objective data and behavior analytic or scientific makes it okay um even though it's it's scientific evidence like i just i can't wrap my head around that and again i know that i'm biased i know that all this stuff is like really hard for me to talk about um and it's very painful but it's like i just i don't understand what what benefit this serves the greater good of humanity. And I think whose rights, like whose rights are we, are we prioritizing here? The right of the behavior analyst to be able to look in the literature for yet another example that extinction is a thing, that punishment is a thing, that reinforcement is a thing, that token economies are a thing. Like, is that what this serves? Do we need this literature to exist in order to understand that those principles are real? I think that through all this, the understanding of Kirk as a human being, that he was a person, he was a four-year-old, five-year-old when this was happening to him, the understanding that we would not prioritize the right for him to not have words like that written about him at anyone's fingertips, that, that for his entire life, this literature existed documenting what happened to him, describing him in terms that that would bring, that are really hard to handle. And so I just, when we talk about social significance, when we talk about 
the centrality of the client, the primacy of the client's well-being and the client's just wellness to it really feels like a flip both in the statement of concern and with larger conversations here, it feels like a flip from the primacy of the right of the behavior analyst to do whatever they want and define social significance however they want, away from the rights of this individual to be a happy, beautiful human being. I think that that's such an important thing to note is that we have power to keep this documented, that this actually happened to a human being. And for a field and a science that is supposed to center humanity and the respect and dignity of humans, how does that match up with this? You know, I, I just, it, I don't understand. I really don't. And I don't either. And that was why reading it was, reading the statement of concern was so challenging because even coming into it, I mean, I came into it without having read Reekers and Lavas and I'm reading the statement of concern and you get to the end and it's just, challenging to understand how that logic flowed. I mean, just the beginning of a statement of concern that talks about the framing of, and, and we've talked about the framing a little bit already, but societal changes about terms we don't use anymore. The avoiding this as a central issue of human rights and social significance, and instead couching it as, well, we don't do that anymore. Like to me that, completely avoids a topic of just why do we do what we do instead we're talking about we're talking about norms instead of talking about values and those values are central to our field whether we want to agree that they are or not social significance is defined by us and i think that that brings up this bigger conversation is like norms and it's like we don't do that anymore but we do we do like just um what is today? What's today? So just yesterday, Florida, um, I shared with Denisha this link this morning. It was like Florida courts just upheld the, the use of conversion therapy, you know, and and a, 19 states had bans on conversion therapy. Now they're 18. You know, like these, this is not something that is uncommon. This, this is still happening. And the fact that we are not just not taking a stance and leaving this historical document there, right, for whatever purpose. But the fact that we're saying it's because, you know, that that was common practice back then or that was the norms at that time, um, which we can talk about again, how that's not true. But um, but to say that that's not occurring now is, again, a, a significant issue with like what Denisha said in the introduction is that you're not bringing in people that's part of that community to understand what is happening in that community. You are writing it. You are writing and you are you are seeing something from from something that you don't have to live, that you don't have to understand, that you have not been subject to. And that just because we're not saying that, okay, behavior analysts don't go and work in conversion therapy centers doesn't mean that that conversion therapy can be called behavior analysis and be paid for by insurance because it can. If we want to write it in behavioral terms, it 100% can. And so that stuff, it, it, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have data to suggest. I don't have, again, we have to go back and we have to rely on data, but you can't not tell me that there isn't a parent out there that sees their kid engaging in a behavior that they don't want to engage in, that is not aligned with their gender, 
and that they want to reinforce other behaviors that are aligned with their gender. And you don't have behavior analysts saying, well, this is what the parents want. We have to go with what the client quote unquote needs. And we don't want to, here's the, here's the biggest part of this is um, we don't want to cause them more stigma when they go into society. So we want to, to train these certain behaviors that, that are socially quote unquote, socially appropriate, because that's our, um, you know, that's our go-to justification for everything is if I can say it's socially appropriate, then I'm going to, um, then, then we can, it's, it's within our realm. And if we like, let's say live in the deep South and, and, um, and within this community, this is what's expected. And this is what's socially appropriate. Then I can, then I can train this behavior into a kid. You cannot tell me that that is not, I've worked on a case like that before, before, like right after I was certified and we ended up closing out because I refused to, to do it and not even realizing that that's what it is. So I know that this stuff exists out there. And now I and will consider that my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no. And in 1974, people thought that this was wrong. Donald Bear thought that this was wrong disagreed that this was socially significant. Um, that right after Reekers and Lobos is published in 1974, in 1975, two different groups of authors, um, Winkler in 1977 and Nordyke Bear, Etzel and LeBanc in 1977, when, when they were ultimately published, both send criticisms of this work into Java saying, nope, no, this is what greater good this does serve. Who does this serve? this does not further this individual's socially significant behavior. This does not support some broader good in the world and in society. They're saying this in 1975, immediately after this is published. Donald Bear is saying this. So I think it's, and that to me is a really challenging, when we go to the statement of concern and it's really, so much of what it does is hang on this idea of this, this burden of ethical conduct was not met. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm not sure we, we want to do that yet. But thinking about it, it was, it clearly, clearly was. One of the concerns that I had when people are talking about this topic, there's the conversation of assent and consent. And uh, one of the things that we know there was a, the issue is that, that there was no assent given from Kurt that the consent was given by his parents, right? Um, I have a issue with even approaching the conversation of an individual coming to seek services. So, you know, Aaron mentioned or talked about what happened in Florida this past week and what's written in that, um, the statements of the legislators is that now people have the right to choose their free speech that they want to determine that, you know, they want to, um, approach this conversation or actually receive services that they have the right to do that. Um, and that in itself is so problematic to me too. The fact that if we are analysts or even therapists and a person comes to us and says, I don't want to be gay anymore, that our right, that our job as the professional shouldn't just be like, okay, sure. Yeah. I'm going to make you not gay. Let's go ahead and do these aversive tactics to do conversion therapy. It should be like, let's explore that. Let's understand what variables inside of your environment have impacted your decision to not want to be who you are. Let's understand the threats that exist in your environment. So much so that you would try to inherently change who you are fundamentally. 
we as behavior analysts know that we change the environment, not the person. So that's the tenet of behavior analysis. And that's the definitely part, I think, about having information like this still out there for individuals who can use it as a way to say, look, we could do it. Yeah. Hey, I have your evidence base. You no longer want to be gay. Look, I'll just show you. I'll use positive reinforcement and positive punishment and you'll no longer be gay. And I think that this is um, necessary for us to even consider what that means. We have to consider the MOs that are um impacting an individual's decision that we have been aversive to members of the LGBTQ community. We have been violent towards members of the community, and that might lead someone to internalize homophobia, transphobia, and seek out services. Does that mean that we then, as a professional, knowing that there are other setting events uh, present for that individual, say, okay, yes, no, do your due diligence, do your work, like, and so I, I just, I have a problem with, with that in general, with thinking that the consent is the first place for us to just say, okay, let's go ahead and use abusive tactics because they asked for it. And I think it's important to recognize that Reekers didn't care. Like in 19, the 1977 Reekers follow-up, he doesn't care that the kid, he doesn't care whether the kid wants this or not. He says, Quote, by itself, the child's lack of choice in an intervention does not pose any legal or ethical problem, unquote. So, and I, I completely agree with you, Denisha, around the, the understanding of who this researcher was, who this person was, is, is really a fundamental issue when we understand this, what happened to Kirk. It's a fundamental issue because we have to understand what we're bringing to decisions around social significance what we're bringing to decisions around this is worth this is worth doing something about this is worth this is a behavior that's worth trying to modify i think it's interesting for a for a field that works um mostly with um, marginalized, you know, historically marginalized or minority groups that we don't have an understanding and it's not required that we have an understanding of minority stress and and how the environment plays a role in that. Um, I don't remember, you know, I don't do clinical work anymore, but <clears throat> through my, throughout my entire um, education, uh, master's degree, uh, um, clinical work or not cl a, a certificate program, um, supervision, any of that, I don't think I was ever explained like the autistic, um, I don't want to say experience, but you know, what uh, risk factors are associated with that. If anything, um, it was this biomedical model of um, there's more anxiety because um, of wiring in the brain and things like that. And so that's was my understanding. Okay. It's just, it's just likely that, you know, people, um, who are autistic experience are likely to experience higher anxiety because of the way that their, their brain has developed. Um, come to find out they're masking for the entire world. Um, they're subject to therapies and you know what we could go on at, could just go listen to the ABA reform episodes that we had and that will explain that. But um, it's the same thing for people of the, um, the LGBTQI plus community is that there's so much um, in terms of stress that come from the environment that it's a result of that. And, he, you know, it's a funny because Reekers was actually asked on camera and I can't get the video to play. I'm going to have to try, but um, by CNN, like his response. And, and so I don't know exactly, but it's something to the effect of, well, you can't make, there's no correlation that the research, you know, um, uh, you know, played a role in this, um, in his suicide, 
you know, and, and so it's just this distancing strategy from the whole thing. Um, but it's just, uh, I, I don't understand how we can't not understand the envi- how the environment impacts the people that we're working with. What we tend to do is we say, okay, it's the person and I'll change the environment to make the world easier for them to some degree based on my assumption of what that is. I think also kind of on topic, off topic, it's important for us to even consider like the ally behavior that has occurred within this whole situation. I think that it speaks volumes. I think we've talked about on the show, like when you have good intentions, but the impact is deadly and violent or continuous, um, a continual showing of the status quo, right? And I, I say this all the time, like none of us will get this right all the time. Like we all are gonna mess up, we're all flawed. But I think that every listener listening right now, we need to learn from the mistakes of what just happened with CAB and Java. Because to me, it it, it speaks of a non-functional ally behavior, right? And so for me, like we all have to consider when we are moving, we think we're moving in alignment to our values. We need to consider the function of our own behavior. Like what what is the purpose of this? And when I consider the function of my behavior, the most important thing to consider is the impact and who on who, not you, the group that you are specifically moving with. And that's also the part you better make. We have to make sure that we are moving with never for anyone with them, because I imagine had Siab, Jabba and Wiley listened to community members that an expression of concern wouldn't have been what they put out. Had they partnered with members of the community, then they would have gone further. And I can absolutely recognize that no one ever did anything prior to 2020. I can absolutely recognize that. But that's why I said earlier, when we make decisions as people that are not part of the community to piecemeal justice, that's an issue because yes, it's something done and you can look at someone and say, but look, I did something, something happened, right? So that's great, I did, we didn't ask for that, right? And I say, and that was just a general we, but the folks from the community didn't ask for that. That's not what was asked. That's not what was requested. A retraction was requested. And so if you want to be an ally, then you move to do the thing that the community asked you for. And so lessons for all of us who are listening. And like I said, we're not going to all get this right. You're going to be called out and you're going to be called in. It's going to happen. But for each and every one of us, we are supposed to be doing things with and not for communities. And so please don't take that away from what has happened, especially for listeners who are like, well, I thought it was okay. That's the problem. The problem is that we didn't have the, the voices of folks that this directly impacts. And I think it's important to mention too, like to to bring a, a group of people in to do something with and not for. It's not just a box to check, just to say, okay, we heard you. We're going to go about and do what we were going to do to begin with. Like you know, we had our agenda set, and we knew what we were going to do, and you know, we checked a box. That's that's not the that's not what this is at all. It's um, it's to 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 listen and to hear and to do something meaningful um, and to listen to what, if you choose to do this, this is what the result will be. And do you really want that 
to be the result, you know? Absolutely. So in, in thinking about the statement of concern and thinking about, I want to come back to that point around thinking about like who we are and what we do and how we approach working with communities that we don't belong to, working with historically marginalized communities. And this idea that how do we approach that? And such a concern that I have about the statement of concern is this is this closing it closes with and includes throughout this idea that this could harm our reputation this could harm the reputation of aba and this is something we should be aware of because it's because it could harm us we should know about it and we should know how to respond to it and talk about all the great ways that the great things that aba does i don't you know i think that it's really important that we reflect upon owning the past we don't we don't get better we don't get more credible we don't become more knowledgeable and more professional by denying and ignoring and explaining away we become a mature thoughtful vital and allied profession when we own our mistakes when we own the violence that we've that we've committed and so that to me is really, really difficult to wrestle with because if that's the narrative that we, that Siab, that Jabba thinks is the narrative that's appropriate for ABA, a narrative of don't worry about it, this happened, but what you need to do is you need to just talk about how great ABA is. No, we need to talk about what happened, what we've learned from it and how we're going to be better. That's what, that's what makes us a better profession and a better and a genuinely helping profession. I will say this. I come from a community that has experienced harm in research, right? Uh, the black community has experienced so much harm from practically all the fields. Um, when we're talking about psychology, um, there's one thing, actually I wanna go to medical. There's one experiment that comes to mind is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, right? I have never, I've looked for it. And so if the listeners are listening and you want to make this part of your homework, I've never found the original data, the original publication, the original article. Was it ever? Don't know. But I do know that I've seen the write-ups afterwards to tell us that this was harmful. And so I don't believe that in order for us to move forward, we have to have that original article in place. I've never seen, I know that that uh, experiment was extremely uh, harmful for my folks, but I didn't have to read about it. I didn't have to find, and I wanted to find it honestly, cause you know, I, I did want to see it. Um, but the fact that it doesn't exist for me to find, like we can, we can take that as, you know, something to think about. Um, and so I want to kind of uh, segue us to ask you this, um, Dr. Johnson, why is the retraction the best method to address this and not just this expression of concern, which obviously we know the expression of concern for our listeners takes multiple steps to get there. So it's like you journey to find the original article and there's a link on it and that link takes you to this expression of concern and then that link takes you to another link. And so the issue I have with that is obviously we're talking about the histories of the individual researchers. If I'm trying to find an article that verifies my stance, 
There you go. I don't need to double click to find out what else is there. I have this that says this works and I'm using evidence based practice and that's all I need to know. So can you can you outline to us why you feel that the retraction is the best method for us to do? Yeah, I mean, I think the primary reason is that that was what the community was asking for. Like, we need to listen to the communities that this most affects. The communities that this most affects were saying that this is not something that belongs in the literature. And I think an important thing to under, an important thing that I didn't really understand fully about retraction until I started really understanding kind of publishing ethics and how that works is that retraction doesn't necessarily mean, it can mean, but it does not necessarily mean erasure of the journal from, from, on, from the web, from anywhere. It can, but it doesn't necessarily. But as I wrestle with this, as I wrestle with this idea, I just think about, I try to, I, I'm coming back to Kirk and I'm coming back to the idea that this kid, this four-year-old, this five-year-old, four-year-old me, five-year-old me, these words exist here about me, describing me in this way, saying all the things they did to me. And it just, it's a real struggle for me to understand what that does, except commit violence against Kirk, the LGBTQIA community, the just humanity. Um, so I think, so why not a statement of concern? Why isn't a statement of concern enough? I think that, you know, the argument by Siab and LeBlanc is that, well, the statement of concern exists because we did not have sufficient evidence that retraction could happen, right? And when you look in the publication ethics literature, when you look at the recommendations of the Council of Science Editors, uh, the Committee on Publication Ethics, statement of concerns are really this middle ground of like, well, we did an investigation, we don't really know. Um, and this is, and so we're gonna have to, to do this because we can't figure out if it's gonna retract. I think that retraction in this case is, 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 is important, not only for all the reasons we just described, but also because it meets the criteria for retraction. <laughs> that this meets the criteria for ethical violations by those investigators. Retraction Watch has a database, retraction database. Um, I think that's what it's called, retraction database. Um, it's the most complete database of, of retractions and statements concerned literature. Over 300 papers as of like, two weeks ago or a week ago, over 300 papers have been retracted for ethical violations in part or solely because of ethical violations. Like this is a reason that papers are retracted from the literature. So the statement of concern argues that it wasn't contemporaneously unethical. We know that that's not true. I outline, you know, we've, there are a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of very clear guidance in terms of what was going on in the American Psychiatric Association. The fact that in 1973, homosexuality was removed from the DSM with, you know, watered down more, but certainly more explicitly removed from the DSM that for years before that Richard Green was writing papers, Richard Green, not a not a great figure in all of this at all, a pretty negative figure, but was writing papers and that were described that are described in books about homosexuality and psychiatry. There's a book by Bayer in 1987. There's an article by Drescher in 2015, where we're talking about these contemporary conversations, contemporaneous conversations in the late 60s and early 70s about why is this something we're pathologizing? That that is not appropriate. The LGBTQ community is being very vocal at that time about why this is not appropriate. That this is a criminalization, a pathologization, violence against my identity and who I am. So just why retraction? Because the criteria were met. Because what's documented in the statement of concern is inaccurate. And fundamentally, because Kirk and every child, every human being deserves better than to have these words 
and this this manuscript existing in the world for people to read about and just see and hear about a human being i want to bring in the the voice of the upswing advocates who are not here to record this with us today because they had you know some prior things lack of a better word um but essentially the issue um that the upswing advocates outlined was that the cope guidelines were cited um which basically uh within that we're told that at the point of the time of the research it was it didn't go against any ethical norms. Um, but one of the things that we've learned from the upswing advocates is that the COPE guidelines, the retraction guidelines, make no specification that that's a necessary criteria, that it has to be applied, right? And so um, with that, and this once again, I wanna make sure to bring them in this conversation because they were, they are, the reason that we're even having this conversation, um, that the board of CAB to do that really is perpetuating that harm and, second, and setting a negative precedent for our field. And I do resonate with that concern uh, to, to dismiss something as, well, at that time it was okay or normal. And just like you just went over Austin, Actually, no, it wasn't still. Um, but this is really the opportunity for the board to do better. And we know that they're the ones making the decisions because if you listen to the original podcast, it said that the board makes those decisions and the editor has the power to make this decision. And so um, it shows that there was a very limited scope that was, you know, considered. And, and I think this minute go ahead Aaron I'm sorry no, no it's fine I think it just it, this just reiterates the point that you're saying of of you know not understanding the community that you're speaking for and not having them involved in this because if you go at look historically first just with gender and sexuality um you know in in this country uh historically um and and who has been marginalized and how uh but then in terms of like queer and trans liberation at, at that time, um, you know, the 60s, um, that's when we saw Compton's Cafeteria, Cooper's Donuts, um, Stonewall Riots, like all of that. And so you cannot tell me that that there was not something um, and that there was a community pushing, about, pushing back against the power um, that was trying to keep them excluded and erased from, from society. And so um, whether it was, quote unquote, the norms of the APA or the, I don't even know all of these, you know, people in power that wanted to create these scientifically driven models of what sex and gender are and then treatments to um to, to ensure that that was the status quo. Um, again, like it's just, it is, it's erasing an, an entire group of people. Uh, and, and, and now in 2020, um, you are essentially just reinforcing all of that. And the expression of concern was, <laughs> it's just, that to me, it was just so much more harmful and, and damaging than doing nothing. And I know that we often say is silence is like the worst thing that you can do. Um, and silence is choosing the side of the oppressor. Like, yes, that's true. And you can choose things that, that do cause more harm and, and published harm. And now it's like there's more evidence to support that this is okay.
So it's just, uh, it's just, it, it hurts. It really hurts. And I know Siab and Dr. LeBlanc would disagree. They very clearly believe that this statement of concern communicates that this is not something the ABA is okay with, that conversion therapy is pseudoscience and we don't support pseudoscience, that what happened was clearly not great. We wouldn't do it now. It's not something that would get published now, as we learn in the statement of concern, that these are the reasons that that we really need to, to, to push back against this. But what we're not seeing is this consolidation of understanding of just, of really, and we come back, we, I, I keep coming back to this term of social significance because it seems like ignorance, I mean, that is, that is fundamental. That is 1968, Bear Wolf and Risley, that is ABA. And if we decide to make social significance a minimal part of what we do, if we decide to say that, well, that is subjective, it's something to do with the client, something to do with us, if we do not genuinely begin to understand, genuinely integrate that into our practice, and the idea that statements around gender affirmation, like the American Academy of Pediatrics has done, that statements around those issues, they are not social stances, they are not activist science. And right now, regardless of whether I think that's great or not, because of course I do, but they are, <laughs> They are the way that we support life and 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 the value of our field and the value of our practice. So it just it continues to puzzle me because the state because as you said, Aaron, the statement of concern <laughs> through its ignorant through its active ignorance because they don't talk about Rieger's 1977 except citing it in support of the idea that homosexuality was pathologized, wherein Rieger's 1977 just talks on and on about how much he just finds homosexuality disgusting, right, and finding every way he can to state exactly that. But we can't, we we just must integrate that into our identities. We must integrate that into our our field because we are making social judgments every day. So what I would like for us to do next is kind of outline, like, where do we go from here? Um, what are the action steps for our listeners? So we always give homework for our listeners. And I think for us with this topic particular, that this is ongoing. And so we want to release this statement as the uh, next step for us to get the word out about this uh, concern. Our goal is clear that we are doing with the community they have spoken and that is to move towards retraction okay um if you were not aware we put out a petition for this within i mean literally overnight we had 500 signatures um so that was a pretty quick turnaround but um we'll link that to the show notes Continue to share that because if we need to use it um, again, we've used it already to try to show, you know, the folks that are in, a, um, in alignment with, you know, a retraction, but sign that if you haven't. Um, and I think that reach out to folks if you know that they are in positions of power, that they serve on the board, um, that they serve on the board for CAB, Jabba, for Wiley, reach out because they're the people that we, we want to talk to because they're the ones who hold power um, to, to make this retraction happen. Um, I think another thing to do is just consider what this means for our field. Do we even have a statement of conversion therapy from the BACBA? 
answer is likely no. I believe the ABAI put out one. Do you, do y'all remember ABAI putting out a statement for conversion therapy? I didn't check. Um, but I need, but that's also one thing that we should is we should care about the institutions that have power in that way. So where are they at? Especially knowing that Florida just said, Hey, conversion therapy can be a thing again. So we need to hold our institutions accountable as well. Um, do you all want to add any other thing? I think that for trainers listening, for people that are training students that have, that are supervisors in a clinic, thinking about these ethical issues, these ongoing conversations around what our field is and does matters. And using this as a prime example of what that is and how we define what our priorities are, I think is a really good idea. I think that's a really good idea to have active conversations with your students, with your supervisees about what does social significance mean? How do we define that? How do we int integrate that with the values of ourselves, the values of our clients? I think that having those ongoing conversations and making this, making, I think having these conversations is deeply important. And I think that that's a, if we're not, if we're not having conversations about ethics, if we're not having conversations that involve real applications of ABA principles to do harm because we don't want to talk about them because they're uncomfortable, because they make us feel bad, they make us feel like, oh, is this okay? Is what I'm doing okay? We need to lean into that discomfort. Like, it's just like how so many of us are coming to realizations about how to have conversations around social justice, about racial justice. Like, it's uncomfortable. A lot of us haven't actively engaged in these conversations before. But you know what? If we don't talk about them, that's perpetuating that violence. We got to do it. I agree 100%. Um, the biggest thing for me that that has come from this whole thing is is hoping that and teaching new people coming into the field and for those who are already here really starting to grapple with when you see something and you have a certain perspective um, regardless of that perspective like you need to look at who's being impacted and what that impact is and who holds the power and who's making that decision um, and oftentimes it's the people making the decision and you know they're they're hurting the people that 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 can impact i also want to add for those who teach, for those who have agencies, um, to include this in your introduction to ABA. Um, I said it before that I had been intentional about including the harms of ABA in my introductions. When I had, for when I, my agency, when I hired my first RBT, one of her um, additional um indirect hours was to create, you know, the introduction. And when she brought it back to me, um, it was a very quick overview of the harms. I'm like, no, go into detail because we need to be aware. Um, and so I would say that that's a homework assignment. If you have an agency, if you um, teach anything, like spread the word to another behavior analyst who doesn't know that this is part of our lineage because they need to be aware, especially we've already had our shows on reform and we'll continue to have more. But when anti-ABAers come up and they say, and this is why your field is dangerous to the rest of the world, you need to know exactly what they're talking about before you decide to get mm -hmm. defensive. Um, you know what I'm just realizing that um, Austin, if you don't mind before you leave um, to detail, I know that you had a conversation with Kirk's sister 
Um, can you tell our listeners how that conversation went? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think I initially reached out to Maris, Kirk's sister, because I wanted to understand how Kirk identified. Um, I, in the original draft of the of my response, I was using they them pronouns, but I wasn't sure if that was something Kirk used. So when I reached out, I you know I did a little bit of googling. I managed to find Maris's uh, phone number or email address. Actually, I found her Twitter. Um, and in talking to her, I mean, she was very. I don't know. It was very. You know, I I was I was very nervous. I I felt. You know, I wasn't sure how she was going to feel about about me approaching her, about bringing up her her brother's death, her brother's suicide, um, her life. You know, she'd been in, I'd seen her in Anderson Cooper. It's clear that this was an ext- of course this was an extremely emotional topic, but she was very direct and she was just very um, willing and eager to talk about Kirk's life, to talk about um, you know him and his identity and what happened. And um, it was a pretty brief conversation. It was about 10 minutes, but, um, you know, I just, I wanted to make sure to communicate to her as well that, you know, I wanted her to know in some way that this, that people are still working on this. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I think, so there was something that this morning before we got ready, I was thinking about like, did that reach out happen? I wonder um, for the statement or expression of concern where the family members involved at all in that next step. Um, and so thank you for sharing that you, you know, reached out and, mm-hmm. and, and spoke with the family as well. Mm-hmm. I think um, that, mm-hmm. I, so in, you know, it's been like a month, right, since the statement came out. And, you know, I'm, I'm good at Google, but I'm not like a journalist. But there's so much information about Kirk online. A man named Jim Burroway had a blog called Box Turtle Bulletin. And he had this extensive six-part series on that blog. Very, very in-depth reporting. Very thoughtful. Talked to mom. Talked to, talk to siblings. Talked to as many people as he could. Talked to Kirk's cousin a huge documentation around Reekers and Lavas, a focus on Reekers and Lavas 1974, that there's the Anderson Cooper documentary. There's Reekers' own dissertation in 1972. There's so many readily available pieces of information to talk about what happened. And I suppose it does make me sad that that wasn't reflected in the statement of concern, that if we were gonna do a thoughtful, rigorous investigation into what happened, that we would that we would try a little harder, that we would find those sources that were really that had already done incredible, like an, an amazing amount of documentation on this man and his life. So that's out there. It's easy to find. Jim Burroway, Box Turtle Bulletin, pictures of Kirk as just a beautiful little kid. Um, you know, it's very hard to read, but Kirk was a really beautiful human being in his life beyond what this was definitely deserves to be told. And I was wondering that in particular, um, because I know that it was stated that they tried to reach out to Rikers as well. Um, And so that's all that great point that you brought up um, in terms of the information that's out there, the potential 
of actually working in alignment with um, the folks who who need to be part of the conversation most. So, yeah. Well, as we wrap up today's show, before I, we say goodbye, Austin, is there anything else that you want to say before we end? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I think that one of the most important things is is what I said around trainers, around making this an active, vital part of what we do. I think that, you know, I've been teaching in a VCS for, we've had an official VCS for three years now, but I've, and my undergrad under, in my undergrad ABA class I've teaching, been teaching for about four years now. As I teach that class more, just, I find it, we must feel compelled and I'm trying and I know that I fail. I know that I fail when I bring up issues of social justice, racial justice, um, LGBTQ rights. Like I am not a member of any of those communities. And I know that I am not doing the right thing sometimes in what I say or how I approach it, but I have to try. We must, must try because the alternative is making this the problem of the communities that are being harmed. The alternative is saying that this is someone's problem that's not mine. And we cannot, if we are truly, truly committed to issues of social justice, we cannot make this someone else's problem. We have to make it ours. I think that's beautiful. And I also just want to add that we're actually recording this on um, Trans Awareness Week, and it just kind of happened to align perfectly with that. Not that, you know, um, Kirk identified as as trans, but um, just bringing to light a lot of these issues uh, you know, as it pertains to, to conversion therapy. And um, and I think right now, too, we can't ignore the fact that context is really important and we're stuck in the midst of a global pandemic where a lot of kids are stuck at home with their families and being subject to these things, um, you know, day in and day out um, and have no escape, whether that's to any safe space in terms of like school that m- might offer some reprieve from these kinds of, of um of things that we see documented just even in our our research uh you know that of this article so um it really just hits home um for for a lot of us uh and i I just know that i can see the emotion on all of our faces um (laughs) you know as we sit here and talk about this and i just um i hope that that kind of comes off as just it's so important that we we can't we can't forget and just let this kind of fade off into the distance. It's something we, and we will continue to push. And I know that upswing advocates will, advocates will as well too. So um, we hope that you all kind of stay, you know, definitely stay, stay with us in this fight. With that being said, um, we're going to continue this conversation online with you all. Um, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and share your thoughts on this episode, share your thoughts on anything that we've presented or any other next steps that maybe you've come up with based on listening. So as always, thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. See you next time. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. 
Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it. So go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.